The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. This morning's scripture reading comes from Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 17, and from John chapter 10, verses 24 and 25. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. This is the word of the Lord. Praise Praise be to Christ. Christ. Thank you very much, Todd, for reading that, those two passages of Scripture. Uh, good morning, everyone. Welcome to Christ Presbyterian Church. If I haven't had a pleasure of meeting you yet, my name is Paul Lim. I've been serving here since 2016 as a scholar in residence, in addition to uh, teaching at Vanderbilt uh, University as a history uh, of Christianity professor. So it's between these two, these two positions that I really find the delight of loving God and loving neighbor. So, um, As we have just read these passages again, uh, if you don't mind, let's uh, pray one more time as we look to the Word of God. Gracious Lord and glorious God, thank you for the beauty and the goodness and the truth proclaimed in the resurrection of Christ, not as a fable, not as just a metaphor of life, but actual full-throttled event that has happened in our space and time continuum. And as the guiding reality that judges all other realities, that death is not the final uh, word on our earthly journey, but for those of us who put their trust in Christ and the power of the resurrection, it is a portal through which we experience the newness of eternal life. So may that truth actually settle within our hearts that many of us forget that each and every moment. Help us to be reminded by it reminded of it by the liturgy of the word spoken, as well as the Eucharistic word that we will receive. In your name we pray, amen. Amen. So happy Easter to you once again. Uh, And I don't mean that just a week ago, but it is actually Easter Sunday in the world where Orthodox Christians are celebrating the day of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Uh, That part of the world would include Russia and Ukraine, and many of our Ukrainian sisters and brothers are displaced and thus dearly longing for the joy of celebrating the power of Christ's resurrection in their homelands, as we have done so last Sunday here in Nashville. So today's sermon is entitled, Evidence for the Resurrection, and this is uh, in continuation with the series that we began last Sunday, and uh, we'll look at the text, the two texts that we have read earlier, Matthew chapter 16, as well as John chapter 10, that those two texts will serve as a place 
as a starting place to solve what must have appeared to be a religious mystery of first order in the first century Greco-Roman world, where this new religious movement called the Way, or Christianity as we call it today, or a group of people who worshiped a person who suffered execution on a cross to have been risen again, and that message began to really spread like wildfire. And at the core of that teaching was that death was not the final say in our life journey. This mystery was that claim that followers of Jesus, while you know Jesus suffered an actual death, rose again, and walked around, and was ascended. And after that 40 days of appearing in various situations and to more than 500 people in one setting, he was ascended to heaven and is now seated at the right hand of the Father. So when you kind of take a step back or take two, three steps back and think about the enormity and the audacity of that claim, that death is not the final solution to all of our life journeys, but is actually a portal through which we get to enjoy that eternal life in and through the risen Christ. That began to change the way that people began to approach their life and their anxieties and their fears. And that has had that reverberating significance, not only in the first century, but also in the 22nd, 21st century, right here in 2022 as well. So the text that will help as a paratext for the Matthew and John text is the Gospel of Luke. Whereas Matthew and John were written by two of the 12 disciples of Christ, both of whom are Jewish, the Gospel of Luke is written by a traveling companion of the Apostle Paul in their missionary journeys, and his ethnic identity was of Gentile origin. And his professional background was likely to have been a medical uh, practitioner, so we get sort of a very interesting and different perspectives. So both these kind of Matthew and the John texts are focused on this identity of the one called Christ. Who is the Christ? And then several were saying, if you are the Christ, tell us urgently, tell us that you are. So in the ministry of Christ toward the crescendoing toward the end of the third year, there was a lot of this kind of questions about who is this guy? He seems to be kind of messianic. He seems to be saying some really interest, interesting and intriguing things, but also he's doing some really kind of unprecedented things like you know miracles and feeding the multitudes and even raising up Lazarus. So there is a lot of swell, groundswell of interest and intrigue about the identity of Christ. Could this be the Christ? Could this Jesus of Nazareth be the Christ that we've been longing for? And using that particular background from Matthew 16 and John 10, I want to tell our story from another text that is Luke chapter 24. The story of Cleopas, a, a person whose name we encounter just once in this gospel of Luke chapter 24, and his companion, they're on their way to Emmaus, and that'll be the paratext. But then you may have actually, you know, around Easter or, or you know, and, and throughout your Christian journey, maybe you have been asked by somebody as to what evidence you have to offer for the resurrection of Christ. And I hope you have heard that. And as, as I was confronted with that a few weeks ago as I was giving a talk at the University of Minnesota in uh, Twin Cities. Um, so it was about four weeks ago, and, and it was 
one of the coldest days I've experienced in a recent memory. You know, having lived in Nashville for 16 years, I became a real wuss when it comes to embracing cold weather. And Minneapolis, they really, it was windy as all get out, and it was really cold. But at the evening, I had this thing called the Veritas Forum, and I was able to engage in a conversation with an Islamic scholar about what unites and divides Christians and Muslims. And after the event was over, there was a Q&A session, and one of the a very ardent kind of a, a, a Muslim brother walked up to me with his uh, couple of friends and asked me that question, what is the evidence you have for the resurrection of Christ? So the rest of my sermon here is sort of a, my, what I said to this a particular brother in my way to answer, talked about certain things, and we'll have the same thing going on here. So I shared this uh, with this friend. I said, you know what? You and I both recognize that material evidence alone will not suffice, meaning that you as a Muslim, I as a Christian, believe in something beyond the materiality of our world, that there is something beyond this world that we see with our eyes and, and touch with our hands and smell with our noses and hear with our ears. There's something beyond they call spiritual realm, metaphysical realm, and that is a very important realm. And I said, you know, so our kind of modern, uh, the, you know, the push of modernity towards scientific kind of rationalism as the only way to pursue all knowledge, you and I both agree, uh, are not the way to answer all of our questions. He says, that's right. And then I began to talk a little bit more about why the resurrection is true and makes sense. And, and because of the resurrection of Christ, I am who I am and so on. And I won't belabor the points of what we talked about. But this is another thing that I talked about in that brief conversation with this uh, Muslim friend is this. That C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien are perhaps two of the most uh, important writers in the Anglophone world in the mid-20th century England, right? So, and their kind of greatest contributions to, uh, to, to our world, uh, to the flourishing of this world, is offering a greater plausibility structure, meaning like how plausible it is to believe in Christianity. And this is how they did it, I think. They talked about the fact, if you are a fan of, you know, the Lord of the Rings or Chronicles of Narnia, what do they do? What they're actually doing in their literary works is to introduce you to a world that you don't always see with your naked eyes. That they're introducing you to a world that is actually perhaps parallel universe, but it is not, you know, not discernible with our naked eyes. In fact, what they're doing is to offer a better mythology of our world. Mythology is not just Greek mythology. Mythology does not only mean that which isn't true and cannot be believed. Mythology in its proper understanding actually means something like this, that, that these stories that are deemed to be foundational in our effort to make sense of our life journey, where we have come from, who we are, where we're headed, and so on and so forth. So by their literary works, Lewis and Tolkien have offered a better mythology of how to make sense of this world. For them, it is a world of at the throes of the world wars one and two, and how to really think about the, the goodness of God and the beauty and the truth of God in a world that is ravaged by warfares. And they began to talk about, and, and C.S. Lewis said that, you know what, in Jesus, in his incarnation, myth became fact. That in the incarnation of Jesus Christ, the myth of God became fact because God dwelt among us. We have touched him. We have seen him. We have heard from him. We have participate now in life divine through that of Christ. In my best effort to read scriptures as a result, especially in light of what, is, what it says about the resurrection of Christ, 
I do believe that there are three overlapping Venn diagrams about it as a way of thinking about the resurrection of Christ. One is external, the other is internal, and third is communal. And we'll unpack that together as the rest of our time uh, in this sermon. So what, what do I mean by external evidence of the resurrection? It's, it's here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 through 8. So I think many of, you are, many of us are familiar with that particular section in 1 Corinthians 15 where Paul is offering what he believes to be the strongest evidence-based apologetic of why and how the resurrection is not a half-baked notion of the gullible people providing an opiate for the masses. He really seems to kind of believe and believe with all of his heart and mind and soul and life that Christ is not someone who was and is no more but rather he, he was and is and is to come. That Jesus Christ, as the writer of Hebrews says, was the, is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And the way he puts it in 1 Corinthians 15 is that he died and was buried and was raised to life according to scriptures. He anchors his authority not upon his subjective experience of encountering Christ on the road to Damascus, but rather, he says, it is actually validated and prophesied in Israel's scripture. Then he says he appeared to Peter, then to the twelve, and to more than 500 people at the same time. And most of them, Paul writes, are still alive if you want to corroborate their account. He's saying, look, if you want to actually ask them whether they have seen Jesus or not, you can go and ask them because many of them are still around and alive. And then he says to James and to all the apostles and then even to me, he says, but here's a problem. Right? And you may see what the problem may be. We aren't there to experience this scintillating moment of seeing the resurrected Christ. There are two gaps. The first gap is the gap of chronology. We're not living in 33 AD. We're living in 2022 AD. Therefore, because of the gulf of gap of time, we cannot experience it as these people that Paul writes about did experience it. What is the other gap? The other gap is an obvious one as well. It's a gap of geography. We're not living in Jerusalem. Even if we're living in 33 AD, but if we're living in Bithynia or, you know, Cappadocia or, you know, uh, Alexandria, we couldn't be there to see the resurrected Christ in Jerusalem, right? So there, is, there are two gaps, gap of chronology and gap of geography. So in that regard, even if I were living in, you know, uh, Aleppo in 33 AD, I'm no better off in terms of wanting to experience the resurrected Christ than I am living in 2022 in Nashville, Tennessee. So what, what Paul offers is an external evidentiary thing. He says, look, I, was, I encountered Christ, but others have encountered Christ in a much more palpable way. That they have experienced, not in a group hallucination, but they were actually there and, and having meals with Christ and having encountered Christ. And this is a very strong external proof of the resurrection. But he doesn't just stop there. What he offers furthermore is what we will call internal evidence. And this is what we see here in Luke chapter 24. So allow me to tell that particular story because I think in uh, narrating that story, you will see what I mean by internal evidentiary structure. So the time, so let's go back to around 33 AD. And we're encountering two people who are really despondent and downtrodden because their teacher and their leader and whom they thought would be like the person who would overthrow a lot of things that were against the shalom of God as the people of God in Israel were experiencing, that they were hoping that this person would be the overthrower of the yoke and bondage of Roman Empire. 
but he died. And you and your friend are downtrodden. You're walking away from Jerusalem. Many of the Jews had categories about the resurrection, but they were thinking of the resurrection in the final days. They weren't thinking of people who died like today and then be raised again in three days. Those things simply did not happen. And even about the account of Lazarus who died and was raised again, people were divided. Some were saying, yeah, that's just a hoax and that's not true. And others were sincerely believing in that. And, and as a result of the raising of Lazarus, there are more people who began to crowd themselves around the person and teachings of Christ. So you can see how this is all kind of real hubbub and, and, and enthusiasm and excitement around the person and work of Christ. But this guy died. Two people are traveling away from Jerusalem, Luke writes in chapter 24. If you have your Bibles, whether on your phones or in your actual Bible, turn to it, please. Luke 24, 13 through 35 is a story I'm telling you here. The, the author, Luke, might have meant nothing other than just the fact that they had to go to Emmaus, which was a town about seven miles away from Jerusalem. Maybe that's it. Or perhaps Luke was signifying something bigger than mere directionality of their travel. That they were talking about the death of Jesus. They were talking about the demise of their political and religious and cultural aspirations and their national recovery project and the disturbing news that he might have been raised from death. It is disturbing in that those things they weren't expecting because after he was crucified, after he was entombed, there was nobody who said, okay, we're going to wait for three days because he's going to be raised to life again. Nowhere in the Gospels can you find such optimism among the followers of Christ, right? I mean, nobody believed that. Nobody thought that, okay, let's give 72 hours and up he goes, raised to life again. No, no. Everyone thought he was dead, literally dead, game over. That's why you can see the directionality of these Emmaus disciples as they're going away from Jerusalem, despondent and downtrodden as they are, obviously and understandably so. And uh, with all of this going on, they were not, and so they heard that Jesus is no longer dead, but then rather than staying in Jerusalem, they're moving away, going away, not staying around to investigate the matter further. And guess what? As you and your travel companion, two of you are walking away from Jerusalem, guess who comes along? It's Jesus. Jesus comes along your side or Cleopas and the other person's side. And notice what Luke says. Luke said that they were kept from recognizing him. Something about this whole encounter really kind of decenters us from our own tiny thrones and recenters us in the story of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let me say that again. We have our tiny thrones. And what the gospel does, what, what this whole liturgy of worship does is it unsettles us. It, it decenters us from our, our thrones and reminding us that you're not in control. I am in control. I am in control of the narrative, God says, and I'm going to show you how you can be recentered in the gospel story again. In other words, some other presence or force beyond these two humans prevented them from recognizing the resurrected Christ. It is not their sin or moral failings, mind you. But something about the way Luke tells the story seems to move the center of storytelling attention from human participants to divine architect of this, word, this world of mythos. So think of the stranger, and he really is a stranger because let's not make the mistake of rereading the story from where we sit. That is, we know what happened. But if you were like, you know, going away from Jerusalem to uh, Emmaus and you are downtrodden and, and really discouraged and disillusioned even, you see this stranger and he says something really, really crazy. 
He says, what are you guys talking about as you're walking? And the question was of such a stinging nature that these two cannot even continue walking. They had to stop and their faces were downcast. And one of the two named Cleopas retorts to the stranger. He says, bro, are you like the only one who doesn't know what's been going on and what's up? Like, what's going on with you? You must be just be a visitor to Jerusalem who has no idea about what's been going on here. Imagine, in a similar way, me going to Kiev, Ukraine tomorrow. And I'm surprised by all the ruined buildings and wrecked highways, and I ask somebody, hey, what's going on here? They'll be offended. They'll be like, what do you mean what's going on here? You should know. Are you only a stranger to this town? Jesus' asked question must have sounded either superbly naive or even offensive for the clueless nature of such an innate query. But watch this. To me, and I think to you as well, this is the beauty of divine conspiracy. Dallas Willard's famous book told in this story, the only one, the only one who knew exactly what's going on is who? This person, this stranger, the only one who was clued in on what had happened is this village idiot who pretends to be ignorant of the very thing everyone's talking about, when in fact he is the only one who knows exactly what has happened. Then we hear from Cleopas's, Cleopas a poignant snapshot of what his compatriots had expected of this Christ. He was Jesus from Nazareth. In other words, in other words, and this may be offensive to some, so please forgive me, it was more like a Jesus from Biloxi, Mississippi, than Jesus from Upper West Side, New York City. Meaning this, in Israel's geography, in cultural geography, Nazareth was not a big deal. And yet, he says Jesus is from Nazareth, but nonetheless, he was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before people and God. And then it was a collusion between some members of the Jewish ruling class and the Roman imperial power, and their collusion resulted in Jesus' execution, crucifixion. And then Cleopas said, yet we were hoping that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. Now watch this. So what this person is saying is that, you know what? We were really putting all our chips in this one basket called Jesus of Nazareth. He came from obscure background, but his teaching began to draw crowds. His miraculous deeds began to woo people. And then his mercy and compassion and demonstration of the incoming, inbreaking kingdom of God really convinced us that he may be the one who was going to redeem Israel, restore the kingdom to Israel, to borrow the language of the book of Acts, as many of the followers would ask that question. It's been three days, he says, since the crucifixion, and then... We heard that he was not at the tomb and there was an angelic testimony that he was alive. Cleopas basically ended his interpretation of the Easter story with a huge question mark. I don't know what to believe right now. Notice this. Cleopas and his traveling companion are not yet convinced that the resurrection happened. They're confused. They're like, we don't really get this because this, these things normally don't happen. And yet we are hearing this. And notice the direction of their travel. They're walking away from Jerusalem. Perhaps we shouldn't put too much emphasis on that, but I think there's something to that, that they were not actually returning to Jerusalem, but we'll notice what they do in just a few minutes as to the change of their direction. 
They're basically saying, I don't know what to make of it, but for now, for whatever reason, we're going to Emmaus, away from the crime scene of the tomb of Jesus. I say crime scene in a very advised fashion. It is a crime scene. If a body has been stolen, then the Jerusalem police will come and say, this is a crime scene because a theft has occurred of a human body. They're not there to, the followers of Jesus are not there to investigate, at least not these two. Now let's listen to what Jesus says. Jesus says to them in a surprising way, he doesn't say, oh, I, I feel sorry that you don't understand. He says, oh, foolish of heart and slow of mind to believe all that the prophets have spoken. That they were the words of the stranger who rebuked them for their failure to connect the messianic thoughts th scattered throughout Israel's scripture. And then this is what Jesus does. Beginning with Moses and ending all the way in the prophets, he began to explain to them uh, what Israel's scriptures had to say about the Messiah for Israel and Christ of God. So as Matthew 16 and John 10 both talk about who is the Christ, the word Christos in Greek means an anointed one. And in Israel's economy and uh, religious and, and political economy, there are three groups of people who are anointed. There were kings, there were priests, and there were prophets. No, three, no single person would fulfill in one's own life those three offices, yet in the Christian tradition, what they have purported and believed and, and taught is that in Jesus, you have someone who fill, fulfilled the priestly role, prophetic role, and then the kingly role. So that is precisely what the Gospel of Matthew and John text, as we have read, are talking about. The, Christ, uh, the fact that Jesus is or might be the Christ. Here's another very interesting plot twist in the Luke account. So after offering this fabulous Bible study, because Jesus says, okay, I'm going to offer you, beginning with Moses and all the way through the prophets, I'll tell you everything that they say about me. I don't know about you, but if you ask me as to what would be the one Bible study in life that I could attend, and I would like, so I can only go to one Bible study, I'll pick this one. I'd rather be with Jesus and him telling me about what the Bible has to say about everything about who Christ is and so on and so forth would be the one that I'll go to. And after this, they were about to arrive at Emmaus at the sort of edges of the town, and Jesus does a second pretending. He pretends this time to go further, thereby inviting a human response. For this one, Cleopas and his traveling companion urged this stranger to stay with them. And they said, abide with us since it is nearly evening. So Jesus, or this stranger, accepts their invitation to be their guest for the night. Notice the word guest. But now, notice also this powerful reversal of roles and revelation of the true host. They're about to have dinner. If you were to look at uh, Luke chapter 24 in 30, this is what it says. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Whoa, 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 whoa. Does that sound familiar to you? What does that sound like? I cannot hear you. Last Supper, the Lord's Supper, that's exactly right. It is really interesting, isn't it, when the gospel writer wants to kind of tell this story, what he does is to use that expression that they had heard. So, and this is, and this is their interpretation, right? Because Jesus doesn't say, I'm going to take the bread. No. So the two people who are there, they are now narrating the story to the 12 and other community members about the significance of what has transpired. And the language they use is the early Christian usage of the language of the Eucharist. Like this is how they record. And notice what else it says. Okay? 
It's a very familiar language of the Lord's Supper. And notice with me in verse 31. As Jesus did that, right, then their eyes were opened and they recognized him. Did you notice that sequential expression? Then their eyes were opened, then they recognized him, and then guess what happened? Does anyone know what happened? He what? He stayed around for five minutes and told them, hey, friends, look at ten minutes maybe? No, it says that then their eyes are open, they recognize him, and then, boom, he vanished. He disappeared. What would you have done? I mean, you, you work with our youth group, right? Sister in red. I mean, like, what, if you were Jesus, wouldn't you like to like, hang around a little bit? Like you middle school kids, you don't know what's going on. Let me actually tell you why I did it. Jesus does no such thing, right? He just disappears. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't get that. If I were Jesus, I would have stuck around a little bit and says, you blockheads, don't you know? Let me tell you one, like, this is who I am. I'm the resurrected. Make, I mean, vanish all doubts. Touch me here and it'll be good. No, no, no. At least in this particular story, what happens is that as soon as they recognize him, he disappeared. And there's a very profound truth here that I want to share with you. It's not my truth, so it's profound. It's the truth of the Gospels. Just when you think, and have you ever wondered, like, you know, wouldn't that have been awesome if I were there, you know, like, hanging out with Jesus who, after his resurrection? Any of you wanted to do that? Like, I thought it would be awesome. I am, oh, thank you, there's one person there. Yeah, at least two, okay. And there, yes, there are a lot of you who were like, yeah, wouldn't that be awesome? The gospel writer Luke knows that. And he knows that there's a chronological gap and geographical gap. And he says, listen. Let me tell you about some people who were actually there with Jesus. How did they recognize him? When Christ broke the bread, and as soon as they recognized him, he vanished. Meaning what? Luke is now telling the readers who don't have the benefit and the privilege of having experienced Jesus in that palpable, kind of tactile way. He says, you're not at a loss. You're not at disadvantage. Because in the same way that we are about to receive right here, as you come together, you know, in that kind of context, in the communal context, what you will experience is no different from what the Emmaus disciples experienced. Because while Jesus was with them, literally, they didn't know. Did you hear that? When Jesus was walking with them, they had no idea who this stranger was. But as soon as he broke bread and they recognized him, he disappeared, thereby leaving them yearning for more, and yet his physical presence was not going to be there. Are you with me? I think there's a very important kind of literary function of this story. The, the reason why this story is in the Gospel of Luke is to really kind of ascertain the fact, because he's a, Luke is a, a Gentile. He's not part of the Jewish kind of family. He feels like an outsider. So he understands what it means to be an outsider. He writes from an outsider's perspective that really helps shed light on something profound about the ministry of Jesus, which was not only for the Jews, but for the Gentiles as well. He's saying, hang on, in case you feel like you're at a loss, you're not. Because these Emmaus disciples, when they recognized him, Jesus is gone. So the only thing they could hang on to was the memory and the heart burning. Notice this. The two things that remained were the elements of bread that he gave thanks and broke that they were there. And then, and then with this moment of revelation, what they came to realize, oh, who it was that had been with them the whole time, how their hearts got all fired up, and they understood the reality of the resurrection. 
Rather than going to Emmaus, they reverse course and return at once without delay or hesitation to Jerusalem. The Greek word there is euthus. It's just a very interesting word. It means that without any shade of hesitation or doubt, you just reverse course because they were convinced that what they had encountered in that very fleeting moment was the resurrected Christ. They didn't hang around and say like, hey, are we sure about that? Let's do, can I, you know, flip a coin to see if this is true or not. They're like, no, we know this is true. Then they come back and tell the 12 about what they had seen. And you know what they tell them? Notice here, it says in verse 35, the two told them what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when, what? He broke the bread. Friends, right here, as Pastor Taro come and offer, you know, the Eucharist with other hosts, what is happening here is as the bread is broken, what happens is communal recognition. As a community, we recognize the significance of Christ. So what did they offer as a material evidence? Their heartburn and the bread he broke with them. I don't know if they brought the bread with them, but you know what? It's this situation of the story is really the reason why we have such a hope in the resurrection of Christ. In, in so doing, I think Luke is also amping up the, great, uh, the significance of the Lord's Supper as a communal proof of the fact that Jesus is risen. So the internal proof is that they said to each other, we're not hearts burning within us. They have this first passion, but they didn't know what that was until the moment of recognition came. They had his heart burn, they said. We didn't know what, why our hearts were burning, but after he was recognized by us, now we can understand internally the proof that God has given in our hearts, in our souls, in the very core of our being. So remember I told you about the, one of the ways to prove the resurrection of Christ is communal? So here he is. Every time the Christian community gathered together from his earliest of manifestations, they celebrated a meal and attached the significance of this meal with the fact that Jesus was not dead any longer. Even more, those who were eating and drinking in this memorial and participatory meal would be spared of the condemnation of death. Yes, they will all die. There's a leveling equalizer called death, but then for those who put their trust in Christ, they say, where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, where, O oh, death, is your sting? Because you have no sting or victory over me. It was only in that communal context that you would be lifted off our doubts, our desolations, our disappointments, so as a result of that, these two uh, Emmaus disciples and the rest of the early church community began to have this right appropriation of the reality of the resurrection, thereby getting a new convictions about what their life was about and new directions in terms of their life journey and the ultimate goal and then new passion in terms of engaging with the world by telling the resurrection story of Christ in their own lives and then new worldview that death is not the final answer. So what then? How do we prove the resurrection? And how does the breaking of the bread bring us to the recognition of the Lord? And then how are they all connected together? Let me finish with a story, uh, which is a story of, of a movie. Um, so I always talk about some movies whenever I preach here, I realize. And this, is, uh, this one is no exception. Now, there's a Polish filmmaker uh, who's really profound, and Stanley Kubrick said that this is one of the best films that he's ever seen, and that's called Decalogue, D-E-K-A-L-O-G, Decalogue. It was uh, a really, it's a 10-part kind of series made, made for TV movie. The first commandment, as you know, is, I am the Lord thy God, thou shalt have no other gods before me. So in this movie, Decalogue, D-E-K-A-L-O-G, it's a very kind of poignant snapshot of what we ultimately put our trust in. 
And uh, Christoph uh, Kislovsky is, as far as I know, not a Catholic writer, not a, not a, not a Christian filmmaker, but he's profoundly aware of the, 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 the ravaging tolls of kind of materialistic kind of socialism in his own way. So in the movie, an hour-long kind of commandment one, there are two main characters. One is the father named Christoph, who's a professor of mathematics at a Polish university, and his 11-year-old son named Pavel. And so father, the father, and he's a single parent, and he raises his son Pavel with the help of his sister Irina, who's going to be a third and very important character as well. The father seeks to make sense of everything in this world with the language of mathematics, language of uh, computers, and language of measurable science and metric. And they're always trying to figure out, among other things, and there's a beautiful story, and it's, it's you know, a fictional account, to figure out the temperature, and right by their apartment complex is lake, and kids are skating on it all the time. So what the father does with this computer is to calculate the temperature that would allow them, is today's temperature okay for me to skate on? And that's the question that Pavel always asked of his dad, Christoph. And Christoph will always get the answer from the computer. So the kid's desires to know about the world will be answered by the dad, whose perspective is reflected through this computer science, quite literally. One, on this fateful day, I mean, I, I think you should go watch it. This would be really great. I, mean, I don't want to give away the plot, but, but on one day, they, Pavel wants to go skate. And then he tells his dad, like, hey, what's the temperature? And then the computer says, today's okay. Don't want to give you that. But then this Pavel kid is always curious to know about the world. And he realized that his aunt Irina is also really, really an important person. So on the one hand, from his dad, Christoph, he learns that everything has to be measurable. Everything is based on science. Everything is about computers. And this is made about two, three decades ago and profoundly, hauntingly prophetic. On the other hand, there's Irina, who is a very devout Catholic lady. And then Pavel asks his aunt, like, you know, is there a God in the world? And how do we know anything? And then Irina says, you know what, let me show you who God is. And then she squeezes him really tightly, giving him this beautiful bear hug. And then she asked Pavel, what do you feel? What have you experienced? And he says, I feel love from you. And then Irina says, you know what? That love from me is actually is from God. And then, so there are these two very contrasted worldviews. And then after this tragic accident, and you can guess what it is, and, and, and then the father, who is, you know, totally furious, he, rather than smashing the computer, he actually goes to a local church where there is an altar of the Eucharist, and then he basically just, you know, smashes the altar, and then on behind the altar, there is a picture icon of uh, Madonna and the child, so Mother Mary and Jesus, and then you see the picture of these, I mean, this is kind of a fictional account, but like tears of Madonna as this child, and to me, like more than anything else, my interpretation is this. God is saying, you know what? No matter what happens in your life, I'm always here to embrace you. When you go through, and many of us, many of us basically deny the existence, have denied the existence of God, or maybe continue to do so, maybe skeptical about it, maybe when bad things happen, we blame God, as does our insurance policy, acts of God as natural disasters. So whenever these things happen and we come to God with our in a clenched fist, God is not saying, okay, get away from me. You have no place in my life. God is saying, you know what? There's always going to be room for one more. With all of you who are weary and heavy laden, come unto me because I will give you that rest that nothing else in this world can give. 
the one thing that, that Christianity offers, unlike many other religions in the world, is this, that the founder of this particular religion was dead and is living again and is returning to make all things right. That, to me, is a hope worth anchoring our life journey. What about you? Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you for this promise and reality that the resurrection of Jesus, though sounding fanciful to some years, is the reason why many of us have said we will follow Christ and no other gods or goddesses, that we will be with Christ and against everything else if need be. Lord, we thank you for those promises. We thank you for that reality that is anchoring our life's journey. Please, O oh Lord, we ask now that you will uh, rekindle our feeble flames of faith, flickering flames of faith. Though it's only been one week, some of us have forgotten about the resurrection already, including me, Lord. So may you remind us of that powerful reality through this wonderful event called the Eucharist that we are about to receive in the Lord's Supper. May we be reminded of the resurrection of Christ and our own resurrections that is to come. Thank you. In your name we prayed. Amen.